Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Naga Notes. I am Jake Wiskirchen. I am the host of this particular show, but we do have two other shows if you want to check those out. Naga Notes Africa and Naga Notes Cambodia. I don't host those. Their hosts are exceptional, however, and I'm going to let you go find those on your own, but I've uh, taken a listen recently and they're awesome, and I couldn't be prouder of a, such an international effort. Today's guest on this particular show is Eddie Davenport. He's a clinical social work student, and he's about to graduate and become a real uh, a real clinician, a real boy. <laughs> and uh, I, I met him through Walk the Talk America, which is another organization that I that I serve on to bring the professions of uh, mental health and firearms ownership together. And Eddie's great because he's a firearms owner and he's also a mental health professional. And we talk about some of the, the juxtapositions with, with those, but also his personal overcoming of post-traumatic stress disorder, which is fascinating and encouraging and inspiring because I think that we want to get the message out that everybody can have their mental health treated and healed, not just, uh, you know, struggled through or managed or, uh, you know, parked to the side while you limp through life in misery. <laughs> that's not that's not what we're about. We want actual, real, full healing and redemption. And Eddie speaks to that really well. So I was, I was really happy to interview him, and I think you're going to enjoy it. The show is brought to you, as always, by Zephyr Wellness, which is a company I co-own here in northern Nevada. Uh, if you're new to the show, check out zephyrwellness.org. If you're old to the show, you already know this. I also am proud that we are continuing to be sponsored by Audible. If you're not yet on Audible, I highly recommend it. Go to audibletrial.com slash noggin notes to get your free 30-day trial and uh, do us a favor by kicking us a little a little benefit. So sign up for your free 30-day trial at audibletrial.com slash noggin notes to get 30 days free during which time you can download a free audio book or some sort of other audio content. You get to keep that even if you cancel your trial, but you probably won't because Audible's inventory is just absolutely overwhelming. So check out audibletrial.com slash nogginotes for your free 30-day trial and help us out, help you out, help feed your noggin and educate yourself. And then finally, if you're interested in a free and anonymous mental health screening, go to wtta.org slash love or just go to wtta.org. You'll be able to click through the site and find your free and anonymous mental health screening. Walk the Talk America is WTTA and that's the aforementioned organization. So if you're interested... Um, Go check in on yourself. It's really cool, and it's confidential. Without further delay, here's my interview with Eddie Davenport. Enjoy. Hello, Naganotes listening audience. Thank you for joining us again. Today with me is Eddie Davenport, clinical social work, soon to be graduated grad student. Hello, Eddie. How's it going? Uh, well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing really good. Uh, surviving Inauguration Day, um, so... <laughs> It is Inauguration Day. Happy Inauguration Day. Hey. <laughs> All the disasters they said would befall us did not, and we're happy for that. So you are a clinical social work student in North Carolina, and we met through Walk the Talk America, and I was really taken by your story, so much so that I wanted you to be on this podcast. And uh, if the listening audience is just finding out for the first time what this is, uh, I, I host two podcasts, uh, which is strange, and I, I think I'm the only one I know who does that. Uh, but uh, one's called Guns and Mental Health, and we do it through Walk the Talk America, and the other is this one, Noggin Notes. And because there's significant crossover with what we do as professionals, 
I thought it would be instructive to, to the listening audience to have Eddie uh, can't tell his story because it's a pretty cool one. It's uh, it has to do with PTSD and uh, and overcoming it, which is always inspirational. Um, but also, you know, unlocks some of the myths I think that we think about uh, what that means and so forth. So, I'm going to let you introduce yourself and tell us uh, who you are and uh, what you're uh, what you're doing and and all that stuff. And then we'll get into the in the actual conversation. Okay. Well, like I said, my name is Eddie Davenport. Uh, I am a proud social worker out of North Carolina, soon to be a licensed um, clinical social worker with um, hopefully in May. Um, my focus is, is um, going to get my LCSW and then my LCAS. Uh, so looking, excuse me, I'm looking to work with populations with uh, kids with trauma is my really is what I really dove into. At this point, um, you know, going through the different clinical stuff and everything, uh, family, working with families is really what it is because it's more of just a single single person inside a family. It's a, it's a whole family system. And then, of course, working with uh, substance abuse issues because it's what came first, the mental health issue or the substance abuse issue, trying to self-medicate. And it's just my school allowed me to get dual licensed, and who's going to turn that down when you're already going to school? Yeah, that's awesome. Well, um, go ahead. Go ahead, sorry. And like I said, as far as a background with the PTSD stuff, I can def- I'll definitely dive into my story. But my background is in fire EMS, mostly the EMS side in the last part of my career. But I started um, strictly fire. So you're going to graduate. That's really exciting. And you talked about this dual uh, licensure. I heard some letters in there, and we tried to define uh, acronyms and lingo for our audience. So uh, LCSW, licensed clinical social worker, right? And then what's what you said, CAS or something? Licensed clinical addiction specialist. There we go. And it's different in every state. So if you're listening in some state and you're like, well, we don't have that where I live, you probably do. It's just called something else. So in Nevada, for example, it's a, uh, we call them CADC, Certified Alcohol and Drug Counselor, or LADC, Licensed Alcohol and Drug Counselor. And the difference between those two is a, a graduate degree. Um, but the point is, in, in every state, and usually across the world, uh, there's substance abuse professionals who are credentialed by some governing body. And so yours is called, uh, uh, what is it again? CAS. Uh, ours is the North Carolina, um, I should really know this. I, I meant just... the acronym, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Licensed uh, Clinical Addiction Specialist. Addiction Specialist, okay. So so that's cool. So you're going to, you, you, you want to work with families, you want to work with children. I think that's really noble. Uh, not everybody has the chops to work with children. My age limit is about 12. Uh, <laughs> I tried not to go any lower than that because I've, I've done it. Um, it's fun, but that's not my, that's not my bailiwick. And I, I realized, uh, through practice trial and error that, uh, I should go where I'm best and leave, uh, where other people are best at to them. And that happens to be, you know, pediatrics. So good on you because almost nobody wants to do pediatrics. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. The, the more I've worked with them, the more I, I might be leaning that way. But for now, I'm still going to dive head into it. Good. Good for you. So let's, let's talk about your journey. We, we mentioned very, <laughs> excuse me, very briefly the, um, uh, this makes for good radio, doesn't it? When the host is coughing into the mic, choking on his own spit. <laughs> Jeez. Um, we mentioned your PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a diagnosis that we render. And um, 
and some some people have an emerging uh, concept now that it's not a disorder, but it's an actual brain injury. And we can talk a little bit about that. But I'm really interested in your experience with this because you mentioned your EMS, uh, emergency medical services, and you worked with a lot of first response stuff. And and really, it kind of came from there. But t- take us through the take us through the the background here and the history. Sure. So I started originally as right out of high school i did i knew i wanted to do something in my life and originally it was trying to go into the military and jake can see me but you guys can't i'm a bigger guy and i've always been a big guy and trying to make the weight cut limits when the military was shutting down basically all their everyone going in was really hard because i didn't really have the grades and i while i had well i was in shape in the sense that i played football all my life i couldn't make the bmi test so Mm need to do something. So that something ended up, you know, working at a job in a hospital. It wasn't really going anywhere. And an uncle of mine is a, was, was a captain in the Norfolk city fire department. And so he told me that if I want to try to get up with something like this, the best way to do is to start volunteering with local fire departments. And a lot of them, you know, offer a lot of training and stuff. And like, once your foot's in the door, they paid professional departments will pick you up. And it's very true. That's, that is how that story happened. So I did that. And while working um, the fire department, they offered to pay me to, or they, excuse me, they offered to pay for my schooling to get my EMT license. And that's turned into a full career. Cause once I was able to get a job EMS, I just, I found, I thought I found my calling, which I'm not going to lie. It was my calling for a while, but in that environment, you see a lot of trauma. It's, I mean, it's the nature of the beast. No one calls 911 for a stubbed toe. At least you hope they don't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, the, you see a lot of trauma and you see a lot of like just bad stuff all the time. And I didn't deal with it well. And a lot of people didn't deal with it well. And that's unfortunately, that is part of the nature of first responders because we live in an environment where we are the heroes. And well, we're told we are the heroes. And like we run to the burning buildings, we go save people. Um, we have people shooting at us, depending on which side of profession you're in. Are you like your job is to save someone, but then who saves yourself? Because if you ask for help, it makes you seem weak, and that can get you fired in some places or just never promoted up the ranks. Yeah, and that's a huge barrier to care access, and part of what you and I now are trying to work on with this this Walk the Talk America stuff is bridging the gap between firearms owners and getting mental health care because a lot of firearms owners are taking their own lives with their guns because they have this perception that if they go get care, they're going to have their firearms taken from them by the big bad government or whatever because uh, they're deemed to be mentally unfit or you know pick your you know story or your narrative. But this doesn't just afflict gun owners; it afflicts professionals. And as you just outlined, there's a there's a significant, heavy culture wherein you're not allowed to ask for help as a caregiver, as a help giver, uh, in fire and EMS and police, and and it, and it even trickles out into emergency medicine, uh, physicians, uh, even even attorneys and laborers, and uh, you know all sorts of professions where it's just it's just not cool to ask for help. And like you say, you, you determined to be weak or whatever and weak equals bad. And, uh, we don't want to, we don't want bad weak people around us. So we'll just, you know, fire them or, or whatever. And, that, and it's really bad. So hopefully having more conversations like this will allow people to relax those belief systems that are, are so rigid that it's preventing at bare minimum 
ongoing misery. And at maximum, some people take their own lives because they can't tolerate the distress anymore. And that's, that's not okay. We need to, we need to invite people in to get help and realize, you know, they're not going to be judged for it. And if they are, well, then we go educate the people who are doing the judging so that they stop that too. So talk to us about how you, you, um, you actually turned the corner there and like, you know, made the decision and then, you know, what led up to, to your, your trauma in the first place. Yeah. So my full story, you can actually hear on a, the, one of the WTTA podcast and I'll think that it's, it's worth listening to if you want the full story, but I'll give you kind of like the highlight notes of it. You're doing a good yeah. job. Your, your agent has uh, contacted you and uh, put you in touch with many people to do the podcast circuit now. So I'm sure Fallon will be calling next and uh, probably uh, one of the other uh, late night people. Um, you're writing a book too, right? You're going to do a book tour soon. I'm I'm totally making this up. First in the book, then the movie deal. Yeah, yeah, book deal, then the movie deal, and more late night talk show. Uh, so, anyways, the how it really started was um, as I was going through the stuff. Like I said I didn't deal with it well. Um, I, luckily, I never like turned to some of the more negative outcomes you can do, like. Well, there was alcohol involved. I don't. I never got to the point where I was like addicted to alcohol or abused drugs or anything like that. But I like definitely did like negative things in other fashions. Uh, I was dating a girl, which, in hindsight, like the relationship wasn't the best to begin with. But the whole relationship just turned toxic during that whole time period. The uh, she was involved and in for um, as a first responder herself, and we just took our stuff out on each other all the time. Mm. Um, I, I worked, uh, I worked as a part-time as actually a, a cook at a, um, at a local restaurant and one of the places, uh, one of the cities I worked in just as extra income. And so I was never getting sleep just because I needed um, money because while first response, like working EMS, it, they say it's a noble profession, which is true. You make like 11, $12 an hour. So it's hard to make a living in a city where the jobs are making 11, $12 an hour. Yeah. I, you know, I killed myself with no sleep and then just, I eventually just spiraled out where I just, I couldn't take it no more and I had to get out of there and f- fast forward actually, um, out of working, um, first response, I met my now wife and I, I'm just like, to this day, I'm so surprised she put up with me for so long. Like I, <laughs> I admit it, I admit it that I was, a my a wife, horrible my wife is Sorry. also surprised that she's put up with me for this long. But like I admitted in the other one that I was probably a horrible boyfriend during those time periods because part of like PTSD isn't always, you know, everyone has different sides. They see some people it's you, you, everyone hears about, you know, the veteran who snapped and killed someone. Well, that's not that that can happen, but that's not always the case. A lot of what you see is, you know, you have people who have nightmares that we hear a lot about those, or you have people who like they, like they're always jumpy and then they take out all that aggression on one person. I took all my aggression out on one person. That one person happened to be my girlfriend, now wife. And she helped me a lot during that time period. I never, and here's the thing. I never saw, um, I never saw clinical help um, near during that time period. Uh, I actually didn't really see clinical help till about two years ago. So I was two years into my professional degree um, trying to become a social worker before I kind of realized that I really do need help. And it was, it was, it was a rough conversation to have with myself that, Hey, like, I, I can't do this by myself. Like, I really need just to talk to someone and the professional help helped. <laughs> they, you know, they helped give me like the, the real diagnosis, like, Hey, this is what's going on. 
and it is okay. What really helped um, was getting back to my passions in life. Uh, one thing I haven't mentioned up to this point is um, I'm a competitive shooter. Uh, and shooting has always been a stress relief for me. And not only that, but the competition side. I've been shooting, I've been in the competition scene since I was 15. Um, I'll toot my own horn here. I have multiple national titles, so I'm fairly decent at it. <laughs> um, but not being, when I was running rescue, I couldn't do those stress relief activities because I, my competitions were always on Saturdays and Sundays, and I worked the weekend shift. So I was always around constant trauma, and I never got a chance to have a healthy stress release from it. I, the, the messaging there is that if you recognize that your life is out of balance, try to find something to put it in balance. I mean, if I could you know, tie up a little bow on that. Um, interesting, though, that you, you mentioned that you never sought professional help until you were into your schooling for your professional career. And I think that that's probably a story that a lot of us experience where there's so much stigma and judgment about going and seeking professional mental health help that we ourselves who are in the career don't do it either until we recognize, holy cow, like this is okay and necessary sometimes. Um, now that's not to say that it's required and, and some, some grad programs actually mandate that you go get, um, service, which I have a whole belly full of problems with. And I can elaborate on that later if you really want to hear it. But, um, Mandatory treatments is not a good idea. But um, when we get into the process of this, the inevitable self-development that occurs through coursework, um, it unlocks a lot of demons, right? And, and you start looking at your own blind spots going, ooh, I didn't know that was there. And then you have a choice because there's an old saying that says, once you become aware, you can no longer become unaware. You get, your choice is deal with it or continue lying to yourself that it's a problem. <laughs> and so it sounds like you dealt with it. And I'm curious what your experience was. How did you, how do you go into a, an appointment? Say, uh, you know, I'm picturing myself and you know, like kind of scratching your head, kicking, you know, eyes down, cast at the floor, kicking like, Hey, I'm so I'm here. Cause, um, I've had this problem for a few years. <laughs> uh, like how did that unfold? So I was scared to death because Eve, the, so now I guess we'll dive right into it because you know, we've always heard the rumors and stuff like I, that. Like if you seek help, they'll take your guns. And even though I knew that wasn't true, God, I was so scared. <laughs> and like, so I'm filling out the survey and everything. And it's like, you know, I think it was like 95 to hundred questions. Like, you know, the pre intake survey, they always oh, have you yeah. take. And I'm sitting there filling things out and I'm realizing like, I'm going to sound like I'm crazy to this person. Yeah. And just like every question, like when it's asking like, you know, about aggression or nightmares and stuff. And I'm like, yeah, check. Yeah, check. Oh man, this isn't going to be good. And, and then like I get in there and they ask, they ask about like, you know, professional hobbies and stuff you have. And my wife told me that if I'm going to do this, I have to be honest. And so I was like, all right, cool. I'm having all this aggression. I have all these nightmares and I like to play with guns. This is going to be great. (laughs) And the first session, the, the, the woman that I talked to, she straight up asked me about some of the some of like the nightmares and stuff like that. And I went into detail and the biggest thing that happened to me is to luckily now these days, I can talk about that call without going into an emotional breakdown. Um, There was a lot of calls that affected me, but there was one in particular that um, I felt absolutely helpless about. Um, I can go into a little bit detail or I can no detail. What would you like? 
You know what? Whatever you're comfortable with, the listening audience, you know, they, they know they're tuning into a mental health show, so uh, we don't do trigger warnings. Um, but All right, fair I enough. I can opine so, on that if you want to. That's another soapbox. But but the for me, the call that it was always a constant nightmare because there's one um, thing about working county EMS and county firefighting is that it's not like you're in like New York city where if you call 911, you're going to have like, you know, 15 firefighters show up at your door. If you call 911 in a rural environment, you may have one person show up for 30 minutes before you have backup. And I, I showed up to a drunk driver call that hit a couple other people. So there was five victims, two of which were dead on arrival. One of which was like basically jelly on the road which was still alive. And I was the only person there for 30 minutes by myself trying to take care of stuff. And there was people watching. And the thing that affected me the most was there was a little kid watching. And so me trying to run that scene by myself just absolutely positively terrified me. And I didn't realize just how much that affected me until years later when I kept having recurring nightmares of that dream, then like, um, interlaced of other calls that I went through and having to actually face that, like, Hey, it is okay. The fact that that absolutely terrified me was the hardest thing to, to get over. What was hard about it? The hardest thing about that was knowing that I did not have the skills or knowledge at the time to save those individuals. That if someone, if an actual, because I showed up working as the fire department that night because I just happened to be um, manning the station by myself. And that's that's clearly, that's actually how that is usually run in rural environments. You have one person at the station by themselves and other volunteers show up. And mind you, I was, I was a volunteer for that station at the time. I wasn't even on there as a paid staff. I had paid staff jobs elsewhere. I just did this as a volunteer. And so I showed up there and the way the wreck happened and the road it was at, um, the best part about this, it was five minutes from my house. So I, yeah. so I had to see this every day coming past it. So for mm. years I drove past the same spot every day. I knew that brown spot in the road was not from oil, stuff oh, like that. Man. Yeah. So going, so regardless of that, the, I saw all this scene and knowing that if um, I had a full ambulance on scene, at least two of those people would have lived. If, um, if maybe I would, uh, if maybe I would have gotten there earlier, I could have lived. Like you know, all these thoughts flew through my head, and the simple fact that I couldn't help them um, go through there. And the the there was also weird stuff about that call, about the sense that to this day I'm still not sure if it was a trick of the brain or if it was like something supernatural. I have no idea. They're like the guy that died um, on the scene that was already dead on the scene, I my brain says he came up to me running saying they're over there. So, mm-hmm. you know, just weird tricks of the brain that happened that night, you know? Wow. Yeah. And it, it, something like that'll really shake you, I think. And, um, I don't know. I'm not going to share my, uh, stories because the show's not about me, but I can identify with, um, imagery replaying over and over feeling helpless. And my question, I guess is, because it's really easy to get bitter and cynical and jaded uh, when things don't go the way that we want them to, especially when lives are lost. Did it affect your belief systems in things like, uh, I don't know, personal faith, spirituality, but also governance, um, 
you know, emergency response, the profession as a whole? Like, did, did you, did you start questioning stuff? Yes, yes, yes. And yes. (laughs) Okay. Um, Moving on to the next question. No, just kidding. We'll dive right in. Um, so I, I grew up in a Christian household. Um, but I am not Christian myself. Um, I, I think the term is probably agnostic. I believe there's a God out there. I just don't know what the God is. Mm -hmm. Um, The way I put it out there is that if there's an infinite God out there in his infinite wisdom, how can man put that into um, small, small words? Yeah. Say Um, that again real quick. That was really good. um, If there's an infinite, all powerful God um, that's supposed to exist out there, how can man put him into a finite set of rules and reason? Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. It, it, It does defy logic, right? Yeah. Yeah, the and so I really questioned that I'd already started going down like a rabbit trail of like, hey, why do I like is this the religion for me? And some of that was because um I was starting to question other belief systems I held. Like um and the other and the WTTA podcast I talked about, there was a uh paramedic who took me under his wing and like mentored me. And in it I, for years, I had really negative thoughts and I said a lot of bad stuff about like in the LGBT community and this paramedic happened to be gay. And the day I found out, I was like, why did you never like yell at me, hit me or something like that? And it was just, he told me, you know, Hey, like I figured one day you would come to me and you would find out and you, we would just, we would, you would grow. And so I'm talking about, so that's, that really started shaking my beliefs in like Southern Christian churches and their, their way they treat it like the LGBT community. But that call really also hurts shaking me is like, like, I mean, I definitely questioned it. Like, how could a God allow this to happen? Mm-hmm. And then I was really mad about like, you know, if, if the County actually would put more money into the stuff, we could have saved these people tonight. If um, we've been saying for years, this was a bad section that they needed to fix. And to this day, it's not fixed. Like I can go to that. I can go to that corner today and it's still going to be that it's still the exact same way. And it's just, and there's nothing wrong with the road per se. It's just, it's a very dangerous section of the road at like 2 a.m. in the morning, mm-hmm. which I mean, just happened to be four vehicles there at 2 a.m. in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, how do you navigate that without slipping <coughs> into, you're a pretty positive person. That's what I'm saying. This like, um, you're cheerful and you're upbeat and, uh, you're, you're a joy to talk to. How did you prevent yourself from just going into bitterness and anger? For a while, I didn't. Um, Fair enough. I was a very bitter, very mean person to be around. Now, I can put on the act in a sense um, that, like, hey, I don't, I won't automatically be mean to you and stuff like that. But I got canned from a couple jobs during that time period. I mean, they were part-time jobs, and one was actually a real job. I needed this to pay rent. Um, and but. It was just it was just my attitude. The I, if I viewed you, oh, I guess I can just go into it. I have a thing where I like to expect perfection, um, and it's and if I view if I view someone as like not being perfect, and, I, and I'm not talking about clients, I'm talking about like actual coworkers, someone who's supposed to have this job. If I view you as not being perfect, I'm very judgmental of you, and it's and it's something that I have to personally work on. I've gotten really better about it over the years. Uh, you know, trying not to be judgmental towards individuals. Um, and, but during that time period, I could not hold my tongue. Like I just, I lashed out at people who I believe did not deserve this job because we're doing serious work that people's lives are on this matter. And I just, 
you know, I, I, I said things I shouldn't have said and was asking that to come back. And like I said, a lot of it I contribute now looking back when it was, I was dealing with trauma that I didn't have a proper outlet for. So my body said, all right, you're going to get out. You're going to get this out one way or the other, but unfortunately you're dealing with it in a bad way. Yeah. A lot of people refer to that as a, like a projection too. So if you're uh, taking stuff that you don't want to look at in, in yourself and ascribing it to other people, we call that a shadow projection. You're unwilling to deal with your own shadow. So you'll find it in other people and, and, sometimes that's nefarious sometimes it's not and it sounds like in this case what was going on with you is your inability to to save the day essentially you know uh help more uh became uh a condescending judgment of others like if you don't want to be here you know like you need to leave and it's like it really what you're saying is i failed and i don't think i should be here and that's a really tough uh corner to, to for people to turn their heads around because they don't want to look that closely at themselves and be like oh yeah maybe i do yeah. um you know maybe i do need to deal with this stuff or whatever i had a job at the time working for an apartment that the only reason i got was because i was an eagle scout the guy who interviewed me was an eagle scout and he said if you're an eagle i'll take a chance on you and i definitely i'll be honest i didn't think i belonged there i didn't think i was good enough yet and then i was dealing with that on top of stuff and it was a really really bad spiral of events so you're out now. What was the process like going through that to, to regain some sense of uh, tranquility? The So one of the biggest thing I did is I, I actually just had to step away from the profession as a whole. Um, I I um, got a summer job working as a stent as a middle as a wilderness therapy counselor uh, guide person. Um, it was for a company called Seuss of the Carolinas in Black Mountain, North Carolina. And I worked with adolescent kids. Um, the kids I worked with the most were actually what they called the seasons group. They were the like six to 11 year old kids. And my first couple of weeks there, I hated it working with them because these were kids that had real issues. I mean, there's like, it, like every other, every other age group had their own specific categories. Like you had the girls group, you had the boys group, and then each one had subgroups, you know, some were substance abuse, some were, mental health some were like um like like some there was a whole group of um, individuals that got like that had like um sexual molestation and stuff against them so like they basically broke the groups down so that they would have the therapists that went to that group knew exactly what they're working with and the people assigned to that group were specifically handpicked to help do the therapeutic outcomes with that group during the week they were there but really what it was is working for that organization allowed me to get back to the outdoors uh the the idea is that instead of putting like a bunch of kids in a mental health hospital walked inside all the time, you, you have them out in the wilderness. And like, when I say wilderness, like you're hiking for six days straight in the mountains, wow. you're in survival skills. Like the, in order to like, I'm air quoting now graduate from the program, you have to learn how to make dead, um, like deadfall snares and stuff like that. And like, actually like, you know, trap animals. they never kill animals, but learn how to trap an animal how to make fire from bow and drill, like, you know, like, you know, rubbing two sticks together kind of stuff. And the idea is that they teach you these survival skills. So that way you can look back on, I have this confidence. I can do something. The idea is that base, it's a base zero building so that when they graduate the program, they're now, they haven't, they're not cured or fixed or whatever trauma it was, but they are now at a point in their life. They can go back and do outpatient. The idea is that you get them from whatever hole they were in, knowing that, Hey, you, you did this yourself. You hiked 
you hiked 50 miles this week through the mountains. You top this mountain. You know how to make fire. You can sleep alone on your outdoors by yourself. Like you, like doing stuff like that, I thought was so cool. But on top of that, as much as I think it should help those kids, it definitely helped me because I was going through this healing process myself that just being outdoors really helped. And it really made like a case for me that like, you know, wilderness therapy really does need like to be looked at too. But at the time period, I had met my wife and I was starting to, you know, and I asked her, uh, well, we were starting to like, you know, talk about the future and stuff like that because the relationship was going pretty good. She's a special education teacher. And I told her I don't want to go back to EMS. And it was funny because when my contract ended, I went back to EMS because that's the only thing I knew to do. But um, it it was fitting. She had a job at a school system that was horrible. Um, And the, the, the administration didn't support her. Um, Like the kids were horrible. There was a lot of violence and fighting in the school system. And she was offered a job in a school system, four hours South, still in the same state, but that, but um, when going down there, um, there was a school that's the University of North Carolina at Pembroke. And she basically says, like, all right, I'll move down there. I'll get this job. And you have to trust me enough to go back to school and I'll support uh, both of us, which was a huge pill to swallow because all of a sudden, like, I'm not like I'm not trying to be the sexist. I'm not the breadwinner. But like it was different for me to know I'm now relying on someone else solely for the support of myself when all these years I've been the person I relied on myself and it was a lot of growing up to do there and it was good. Wow. That's a heck of a story. I really appreciate that you talked about relying on somebody else there. Um, and, and it has nothing to do with male or female. It's the, it's that we all have this independent spirit that we want to you know do things for ourselves and not, you know, be handheld. And then when you have to acknowledge that somebody's got to help you, well, that's what has to happen. And I think we go through that when clients walk into our office, you know, and, and they're in the position where they're like, they've faced reality and said, I can't do this on my own. And our responsibility as clinicians is to welcome them in as warmly and compassionately and non-judgmentally as possible. The other thing I really appreciate you mentioning was that you, you uh, used to be really super judgmental and you're continuing to work on that because that's what that's what makes a good practitioner, somebody who's examined his or her own flaws and then um, fixed them, right, and continues to work on them. And there's no arrival point at self-awareness. You know, there's, there's, there's no, no arrival problem. point. <laughs> if, you, if you get there, you're God, you know, because you know everything and you're, you're so self-aware that you are one with the universe. So all we can ever do is really approach it. And we're always working. We're always fixing. Um, it was really nice to hear you be vulnerable enough to share this stuff about like your, your bigotry and and all that stuff getting called out and then saying, I grew from that. And I think that's what we want as a, as a profession is as, as professionals, we want to espouse and continue to popularize the idea that rehabilitation is possible. Redemption is possible. Grace and forgiveness and overcoming and all that stuff and growth are all possible. Um, because if we didn't believe that, we would cease to exist as practitioners. There, there'd be nobody who could change, you know. So, um, being able to tell those stories transparently and say, "I used to be this, and now I'm this," because of the certain insights that I gained, I think is a good modeling for people who are seeking help. Mm-hmm. So, oh, go ahead. Are you gonna say something? So, like, I'm not trying. I'm not calling out any individual one person on this, but it. 
it might segue into what we kind of want to talk about. But like when I originally went to go try to seek help, I was scared because like as much as we're supposed to be a vulnerable accepting population, like when I say we, I'm talking about specific social workers, but it can really go to any mental health professional. But like people in my class kind of found out that I was like getting help for stuff. And they like I, I like I knew they talked because like because I at that point I'd kind of come out as the gun guy because we had to talk about different stuff and I knew they talked in the sense like um it's like I wonder what he's getting help for I wonder what he's doing what's wrong with him like he has guns doesn't he it's like like I did hear rumors back from friends of mine that like people are hard to interact with you know like you know there's talks going on that like 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 you like you might not be safe to be in a classroom with that's so despicable that's so despicable and it's rooted in nothing nothing there's no data there's no science there's no literature that suggests that and yet these are beliefs and so we wonder why people are scared to come in to get treatment if they think they're going to be whispered about in the hallways of the agency you know and i'm thinking about that form that you had to fill out that you know, 97 questions or whatever it was when you first went in um show of hands if you're driving don't take your hands off the wheel but uh you know how many of you when you go into the primary care physician's office uh are honest on the form about anything <laughs> you know like i i'm a home brewer i drink every night of the week um you know but the but the form itself sounds super judgmental because it's like do you drink alcohol uh if yes how many and it's like zero to one it's like per week right it's like zero to one uh two to three uh, three plus and you're like, well, three plus, I guess. <laughs> but if it goes higher than that, it sounds like you know, if they just ask you to write it in free for me, like, I don't know, 12 to 15. Cause that's like two a day. <laughs> like, like, am I, am I, am I bad for that? You're like, what has the CDC said lately? And so there's this, uh, there's this inherent judgment that says, if you do this, thou art unhealthy, or if you do this and thou art unhealthy, then thou art you know a danger to self and others. So you're like, well, I'm just not going to go there. And then it forces us to keep this stuff below the surface, and we never get it addressed. And then we live in misery, and that sucks. And I don't know what we do to cure it other than have more podcasts. But I always wondered how many people were like, midway through those questionnaires and you're like, you know, screw this. I'm done. Yeah. They drop it and walk out. Yeah. I'll toot my own horn here. And you know, at Zephyr wellness, we, we purposely stripped all that stuff out of the, the intake form, which is like, you know, shame, shame. And I'm doing the little like finger, uh, swipe thing that, you know, when you point a finger at somebody and you drag your, your finger, your other finger down it to like point and shame at somebody. I, I can envision some of my professors saying something like, how could you take those questions off your form? Our form only has asks demographics. It's who are you? What's your address? What's your insurance? Um, what are your top three goals and what, you know, what brings you in today? That's it. Um, and some people don't even want to put that down because it's like, well, once I put it on paper, where's the paper go and who's going to yeah. see it? And it's like, well, we got to start somewhere, and we and 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 the purpose for that because my big thing is intentionality. Know why you do what you do. Um, the intent behind asking what your three goals are and what brings you in is it is it crystallizes the outcomes, the desired outcomes. Like it it, it creates a commitment to care. So you can't just get squirmy and and be like, well, I came in for something, but really it's something else. And like we'll figure that out along the way. But at least we can point to the paper and say, here's what initially brought you in. And then later, what's really cool is we can refer back after weeks and say, 
do you still have these things, you know, or have they been accomplished? So it actually creates goal setting 101. It creates framework and parameters for knowing if we're improving. But I don't want to ask. We used to do this too. I just I just carbon copied somebody else's form. It was like you know, abuse history and sexual violence history and alcohol history and drug history and what prescription medications, you, dude. Why are we making people put that stuff on paper? It doesn't make any sense. If you're a good practitioner, you're going to get that through the interview anyway. That's it. Just they're going to tell you what's relevant. Don't make it what you think is relevant because it may not even be relevant. People go, well, you know, I'm 48 years old and I did get you know abused when I was six by my uncle, uh, but he's dead and I resolved that. But I guess I have to put it on the paper because you asked me. It's like, no, let's, let's not do that. One of, during one of my internships, I actually was um, like case manager interview, whatever you want to call it. And having to do those intake interviews with people, like you could just see their face just dot, like just go down. Especially when I was working in the hospital system, they like they were there, and I like someone told me, like the rumor goes around like in order to get out of the hospital, like when I say like the hospital, like you know the intentional lockup hospitals, mm-hmm. like in order to get out, you got to be serious, you got to be honest with them. Be like, I really don't want to talk about this, and I really don't want to talk about this abuse because. And the thing, like the, the best thing I was ever told to me was, be careful what you ask, because once you open that can of worms, we're not prepared to handle that can of worms right now. So, right. Don't open something if you can't help them through it. And I think a lot of people need to like understand that, like, there's nothing wrong with getting demographics and finding base information. But if you pre- are you prepared, really, on session one, day one, to talk about someone who was abused all their life by their dad? Are you really prepared for that? Well, <laughs> and are you more? Pre- or, or, a better question is, are you prepared to shut them down and continue the interview? Yeah, because if you really need that, in, you know, the, the, those in pieces of information, you can't go that direction on that day. But what if that's what your your patient wants? What if they really want? They're like, today is the day. I'm striking while the iron's hot. I have to talk about the abuse I suffered in childhood. I'm not interested in talking about my daily habits of nicotine consumption. Oh, but but the form says I must ask you. You lose them. You go, ah, mm-hmm. sorry, not today. Come back next week. They're like, no, you, you had your shot. And now that person's been left basically harmed. And if they're not harmed, they certainly weren't helped. And th- that I'm speaking to ethical principles now, and you probably know these that for, for the listening audience. Uh, a refresher is our, our five ethical precepts of the counseling profession are a justice, which is do do the right thing, act on somebody's behalf, be be an advocate, fidelity, meaning be faithful, honor the contract, honor your commitments, uh, be transparent, be honest. Um, autonomy, which is respecting the autonomy of the individual you're treating for them to choose for themselves what to do. And don't make what Christian Conti would call the error of omnipotence, which is thinking that you're responsible for their behaviors or their changes or their outcomes. So respect autonomy. People can still make bad decisions if they want to. You can't control them. And then non-maleficence, which is don't hurt anybody. Sometimes people read that and they say non-malfeasance. Malfeasance is something that um, public officials do when they abuse their office. It's not malfeasance. It's non-maleficence. Don't be maleficent. Don't hurt anybody. And then beneficence. Benefit somebody. Be, be helpful. Right. So if you if you're doing this like static, sterilized intake process, um, and you're asking all these questions that really will never matter in the long course of treatment. And you push somebody out of care, they may never come back. And you violated a whole bunch of those ethical precepts by doing that. So we want to be human beings, and we and 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 I think what scares clinicians, and f- you know, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, because it's been a few years since I've been in school, and I don't know what they're teaching these days. But I think we're we're taught to be rigid. 
with our intakes so that we don't miss anything. Um, and then if we don't do that, we, we might miss something and forget to come back later. And, oh, I totally forgot to ask about your military experience. It's like, well, no, it's, if it's important, they'll bring it up later. But, um, my, in my estimation, we're scared also to leave the form behind or the, the, the eval or whatever it is, whatever's the, the, the pen and paper thing, because it's harder work to do a good, robust psych, biopsychosocial interview. It's harder because we have to hold things in our heads. We have to go where the conversation goes. It can't be rigid and sterilized. And I think people are just allergic to work, man. Like these days, I don't know. Um, I'm starting to sound like the, you know, the, the grumpy old man, get off my lawn. Uh, it's like, I don't know. I don't know if, uh, if people are just getting entitled and they're kind of, you know, fat, dumb and happy because they, you know, don't have to work super hard, but it's like, there's a work allergy and that doesn't beget good outcomes for our patients. I, I'm new to the profession, so I, I can't really, I don't want to like, like speak on something that like, I'm not like super involved in yet, but from my experiences going in, I think it's like a little bit of everything there is some of it is definitely, you know, like we're taught in school that like it, you live and die by the form. Like you go across it from A to Z and you don't, that way you don't skip anything and you got to make sure everything's done. So that way that later on, you know exactly what you're helping with. And, and the other stuff is like, I think people are afraid that if they don't have the form in front of them, they, they're going to, they're going to miss something or they're not going to, they're not going to get the question they need to actually help somebody. And, and some of that is true. Some of it is like, I think people are scared to change. Um, when I had a social worker that she actually retired this year. And so she was a really big influence in helping me like grow as a a clinician and grow as a person in the sense that like when I was doing interviews and stuff like that, she was watching in the beginning and she based, she came up and she was like, all right, you've done three, give me the form, took the form, threw it away. So like, all right, talk. That's a good mentor. (laughs) She's like, you, you like, I gave you the forms at the beginning that way you can at least get an idea so you can help get through the butterflies with talk. Like it says, and if like, if someone doesn't bring up military and it, and and it needs to be asked, well, it'll probably come up. Yeah. Like we're we were close to Fayetteville, which is Fort Bragg, and if someone's military, you're gonna they're gonna bring it up. It's it's gonna come. So like, don't worry about it. Like, and if someone doesn't bring up sexual abuse, well, we're the initial intake interview. Don't worry about it. It'll come up later. Right. That's a that's a really good mentor to do that for you. I'm really glad to hear that people like that still exist. You know, and so we'll go back to intentionality. What's the intentionality of the form? Why do we think that it's so critical to stick to the form, go A to Z? I I don't I don't really know. I mean, I got some ideas. What do you think? I think because it's something we've always done. Yeah, possibly, um, yeah, just orthodoxy. Point, yeah, I think at one point someone thought of this as best practice. And it's now hard to change what we considered best practice like 10, 15 years ago. But I mean, things have changed. I mean, look at the DSM at one point. What wasn't it being gay was considered a mental disorder. Yeah. Yeah. Homosexuality was in the DSM too. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Go. If you're a clinician listening to this and you're fairly new to the the profession, do yourself a favor. If you can get your hands on an old DSM one, two or three, go grab one and flip through it. It will blow your mind blow your mind. I have a three. It's this little spiral bound thing. It's really thin. And, um, it's mind bending what (laughs) was considered mental illness and, and how it's changed and evolved. And of course now there's a pushback counter argument says, you know, the book keeps getting bigger and with a culture that 
has told us that mental illness is this big spooky thing that we're not allowed to talk about and can't be overcome, which is horseshit, by the way. Sorry, I never swear on this, but I just I get really fired about this stuff before the start. <laughs> I know I did. I was like, we don't we don't curse on this podcast because kids listen to it. Um, but it is it's crap. It's complete crap to think that mental illness can't be overcome. Uh, and as I referenced before, if that were true, we we wouldn't exist. But as the book has gotten bigger, I think more people are finding excuses to justify their behaviors rather than articulate explanations of what they're dealing with in order to fix the behavior. And I'm not super happy about that. Uh, I know that it's just become, it's, it's, it's given laziness uh, a real foothold in schools and in homes. And, and it's like, well, don't blame me. Don't blame my kid. Blame the ADHD. Like find justification for the behavior. And like, I'm going to segue on that. I have ADHD. I have done perfectly so well do in high school. I had like I, I struggled in high school because I didn't like do, I didn't like doing homework, but um in my undergrad I was 4.0 dean's list. Don't tell me it can't be done even with and I haven't taken medicine since I was 18 years old. Yeah, and that's not saying medicine's not helpful. I'm, I'm not I'm not saying it's not helpful. I but I do believe that you can survive without medicine if you put forth the effort. But it is a hard effort. And in a culture in a society where effort is not super well received these days it would make sense why people would rather just reach for a quick fix be that a pill or a drink or uh, anything else um and, and we can talk about relationships and with that regard too i mean pornography is a quick fix to a uh, sexual desire it's not substantive it's not healthy there's no research that says having your relationships artificially is going to be good for anyone uh, but people still do it because it works problem is it works temporarily and so the, to the, back to the pills, they work. They're, they're designed to do that, and they do. Um, but is that what you want? Do you want this codependence now upon a, a, a ingesting a substance to help you focus? Well, I'd rather just train my brain to focus. And I think there are definitely some people, depending on what it is, that absolutely need that stuff. Um, there are some people that cannot function, like they their depression or their anxiety is to the point where like, having that pill every day helps them to the point where they do function. Yep. And like make, could those people sometimes get off that pill? Absolutely. But do those people also function perfectly well with that pill every day and have a normal, healthy life? Absolutely. And yeah. so th- there is no, there is, it's not a binary issue. It's not A or B. It's not, it's, it's the pills are a tool that can be used to help people, they, but they are not the end all be all. Yeah. I think that's the messaging there is that, um, you know, it's ask your doctor. Uh, don't, don't, don't listen to us and don't, don't listen to the messaging from big pharma and don't listen to, you know, uh, anything that has an agenda. Go, go ask your doctor. I mean, my agenda, I'll be transparent with my agenda. My agenda is that everybody lives a healthy, happy life, um, preferably free of as many supplements as possible. Um, but let's face it, bodies break down, brains break down. Um, and sometimes we need supplements and that's the benefit of Western medicine. That's, that's great. Um, one of the, disadvantages of western medicine that's been pushed into our psyches over the last three or four generations is that western medicine solves everything and you're not allowed to get sick and if you get sick it'll cure you and nobody's allowed to die it's like well that's antithetical to nature uh so no um but then what happens if we start to believe that unconsciously is we're just looking for cures all the time instead of learning to tolerate distress or learning to suffer well, learning to age gracefully, uh, modeling for people what it's like to approach death in a in a uh, kind and conscientious manner, 
instead of like this this fear provoked uh, response of like no no avoid avoid at all costs don't ever get sick don't ever hurt yourself it's like that's not possible wrap yourself in bubble wrap and stick you in the corner you die of suffocation <laughs> you know, it's like what, what are we trying to do here so um, if it works for you keep doing it um, if it's something you think you need to try try it um, then if it works keep doing it um, but along the way I think the idea is that humanity got here somehow over its approximately 40,000 years of, of evolution into its current form. And uh, Western medicine's only really been around for a couple hundred. So somehow we made it, which means that we still have the potential to to do without. Now, is it a quality of life issue to take ibuprofen to fix your headache? Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> but also maybe consider where the headache came from. If it's stress or if it's you drank too much the night before, maybe you need to alter some behaviors to avoid headaches altogether. Man, you just unloaded a whole like can of worms there, like because a lot of that is cultural. Like we as a culture have just shied away from dealing with like hard situations. It's like the whole sure. everyone gets a trophy thing. Like the it, we we have gotten to the point where like we don't like going through hard situations, and you can kind of see that. Like it's not it's it's nothing against the current generations. These kids are being raised by individuals who push this narrative, and it's nothing against those kids. Like that's all they've known. And so like, but it's, so like, if you don't get the instant gratification, um, it's kind of like the Amazon thing. Like I ordered, I want it right now. Mm-hmm. And I, I won, I want the, I played, I want this right now. Like it's instant gratification. That's why also I think it's hard to get people to come and talk because there isn't a, it isn't like, you know, sit my kid in front of me and fix him. Oh well, yeah. I mean, you need to sit down too, because maybe it's not him. Zephyr, <laughs> Zephyr's intake packet has a, we don't do fix my kid policy on it. And it doesn't read like that. I read it to the people like that, but um, after I've built some rapport, but it says, you know, you parents as the executives of your home are in charge of the way things work. And as you go, so go your kids. Um, We therefore require your regular attendance. And that's, you know, that's to be determined by the clinician. But the point is you don't just drop your kid off at the therapist's office and and wave a wand. I had a wand, but it broke. Um, I wish I, I wish I could get it fixed. Ollivander's wand shop closed, so I can't can't go get it fixed but um the the point is yeah it's it's slow and we're not used to enduring distress anymore and i, I did a video about this for the the zephyr uh, youtube channel when i was talking about back last fall or whenever we had all the fires out west and there was smoke everywhere and it's compounded by covid and political unrest and civil unrest and it's like it it's just a lot and we don't know how to deal with it because generationally we we just haven't had to for a long time, all our wars are fought over there somewhere. You know, uh, we don't know because we don't see it. We see a little bit of the after effects when they come home, but those are compartmentalized too. Um, we, there just hasn't been a big generational calamity that was you know, the people bound together to go to go fight, and um, and now we have one, and they're not bind, We're not binding together, and I think it's because we want it instantly gratified. Where's no, the damn vaccine? It's like. It takes time, man. We're drawing battle lines with mask and not mask, or is it political or not political? And like, we had we had politicians who were saying things one way or the other. So it's like, what do you believe? And mm. at this point, like, what is fact? What is truth? And it's just that's a whole rabbit trail that I'm sure this is not the podcast to go down on. But it's just we we as a society like we're getting to the point we're getting we got to get back there and we're doing well with it it's just we have a lot to overcome and it's it doesn't it doesn't just go away like it just 
there's always there's always things that we need to struggle and overcome with and it, overcoming something is hard um yep i want to deal with ptsd and it was hard and trust me it's not something you want to deal with and it's just like it, it it's hard <laughs> i right. hate to like keep saying that word but it's the truth well now that we're talking about all the instant gratification stuff i usually rattle off three or four um examples but i'm i'm really looking almost everywhere these days. Uh, you mentioned Amazon and I didn't even think about that. Um, I've, I've mentioned it before about the potential future of not having to engage the public as, as a result of Amazon. Cause we could just like hibernate and, you know, isolate in our homes and never, never see the world cause we'll get groceries delivered by drone or whatever. Um, but I didn't think of it in terms of the instant gratification thing. Um, and it's very, very coincidental that this is being brought up right now because literally just yesterday I had to tell my five-year-old that I'd ordered a book to replace a book that was lost. It tells you how to it's – a, it's a course that I took in play therapy. The guy's since retired. Unfortunately, I can't reach him to get the book again, but it teaches you how to like make figurines out of Play-Doh. And it's really, really, really good. And the only place I could find this thing was for like $86 on a used book website. And then and then it was like 100 and something on Amazon. I was like, this is ridiculous. Finally, I found one for 50 <laughs> so I So I bought it because I really wanted it. And Elijah was like, can we make Play-Doh with the book? When's the book coming? And I was like, oh, I just ordered it two days ago. And he goes, well... He said something like, how come it's not here yet? It's like, and the implication was most things get here by now. It's like, well, it's coming from a used bookstore and I picked like cheap shipping. So I'm sorry, spending 50 bucks on the book. I don't want to pay up for shipping. And I was like, it said like five to 15 days or something. And I was like, two weeks, like two weeks. This poor five-year-old is like, what do you mean two weeks? But that's the messaging, right? And you think about how it trickles up generationally too. Like even my parents are getting antsy when they don't get the, tv to respond right away you know, to to direct tv or or like the the internet doesn't return the search results in point oh 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 six eight seconds and, and customizable too right like you think about things like the names of these things like youtube and iphone and myspace and facebook like it's, it's all about us customized specifically uh instantly don't don't delay uh don't have to wait and uh, it's, I think it's ruined our distress tolerance altogether. Uh, I mean, we go through this in COVID times. Me and you are talking over Zoom, recording this. How many people have been in a Zoom meeting that someone slightly stuttered? Like, oh, my God, why can't it not work? Yeah. Well, we're like multiple states away from each other, and we're having a conversation looking at each other's face. I know. Like, take a minute to enjoy the fact this is working. <laughs> yeah, who is that, uh, the comedian who is uh, talking about flying through – flying in a jet and people are complaining they're like my flight's delayed it's like shut up you're flying through air in a tube at 500 miles an hour like <laughs> shut up <laughs> but it is we've we've lost perspective i think we 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 would do well to get back to appreciation so it doesn't sound like i'm just like complaining all the time because that's kind of what it's starting to sound like in my head um i think the fix what's what's the cure what's the solution i think appreciation gratitude um for sure and uh really just slowing down. I don't need to be on Twitter. I just don't like at all. Um, I can probably, you know, get my news wherever I get it and I don't need to be like endlessly scrolling. Um, you know, and I think all this, all this has conditioned us to, to get away from the, the gratitude and appreciation that really forms the foundation of, um, I guess a happy life. Mm -hmm. And, 
Um, I think ultimately too, what this distress tolerance has done is it's made us a little bit um, grouchy and irritable and bitter. And one of the things you brought up, and I promise this will tie back together. Um, we brought up earlier before we were, we were on, we're talking about, I guess we did do it in the podcast. Um, talking about clinicians being judgmental. Um, I got to believe that the entitlement that's coming out now with regard to our career, it's like you go to school, you go to grad school, you do all these hours, you're supposed to get paid and paid well, and um, you're going to go heal the world, right? And then that doesn't happen. And so our, our expectations are inappropriate aligned with reality. We don't know how to deal with the stress when we don't get what we want. And now we almost, I think I think clinicians are sometimes putting it on their clients to, to make them happy. It's like, why aren't you fixed yet? And And I don't know if that's, if I'm way off on that, but... Some of the judgmentalism that I'm hearing from the the people who come to our clinic, they're sitting there reporting, you know, it's like, how come nobody's ever told me this before? How come nobody's ever talked like this to me before? You give me hope for the first time and I've been in therapy my whole life. It's like, that's not right. And I don't know. I don't know what that's about. Their whole life. Like, like, what is it something? So who's milking them for money? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I don't uh and maybe I'm the judgmental one, right? Because <laughs> my interpretation of ethics is is righteous and superior is supreme, and <laughs> nobody else's is. Like that's that's pretty judgy too. Um, but I got to believe if we go back to those five ethical precepts, if you're keeping somebody on the calendar in perpetuity because you're the one finding their problems and they're not necessarily asking, you're violating a whole bunch of precepts too. You're certainly violating autonomy by creating a dependence. Um, you're telling them what's wrong with them instead of them identifying it, causing harm, possibly financially, but it's not my place to judge what your financial situation is. It's yours. So if I say, oh, he's rich, he can afford it, um, or my rates are low or whatever it is, um, there, I don't know that you're benefiting by creating a dependence. So there's, there's very little beneficence going on. Certainly if you had a treatment plan and a goal to that, you're breaching fidelity by not being, by not honoring it if they completed whatever they came in for and you're just finding new reasons to keep them on the calendar, that's a problem. Uh, and are you really being just? So maybe, maybe we're violating all five precepts. I don't know. Yeah. Social workers, we, we have a code of ethics that we swear to in there. And essentially it's the, it, it all touches on the same thing. We, the, your code and my code, they all touch on the same thing. It, it's the same stuff. Like if you're keeping someone on the calendar just for money, like you're in the wrong profession. And I yeah. know there's people who know it. Um, and they make probably a decent living doing it, but like, are you really helping the person? And I, um, and I know like social workers are really thought of like around where I live, social workers are kind of thought of as the person that comes and takes your baby because it's, you know, they right. work for the department right. of services. And that's the biggest thing for me is trying to figure out. It's like, um, like, Hey, I'm a social worker, but like, while there's social workers like that do exist, they exist because you know, that baby was getting harmed, but like we do so much more than that. And, but it's just the, dealing with people's perception of who we are also is the hardest thing of getting them to come in to talk to us because like, Oh, you're a social worker, but my sister's baby was taken by a social worker. Like, like, I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not that social. Mine has a C in front of him. I'm a clinical yeah. social. Worker. I'm not, I'm a lawyer, but I'm not that lawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm a We had, uh, you're in the gun community, so you know this guy, uh, Colian Noir. He was on our podcast uh, the other day and I said, Hey, introduce yourself to the audience. He goes, well, First of all, I'm a dirty attorney. <laughs> oh, I love Colin. <laughs> um, I just uh, uh, topical because you're you're mentioning it. I just pulled up a tweet that I uh, I responded to 
the other day from a gal named Monica Gandhi. She's a, she's a medical doctor and she has an MPH, a master's in public health. She's, she, she does, she's, she's pretty outspoken and she's very, very intelligent. Um, she talks a lot about, um, the coronavirus and uh, vaccines and whatnot. She's, she appears on the Z dog MG show sometimes and he references her, but, um, she, she writes, it is terribly important to want to put yourself out of business and you're in, if you are in infectious diseases. And I wrote, and mental health care. Oh, mm-hmm. the soapbox from which I could preach about this topic. And then here we are soapboxing about it. So it's not just us. There are people in the world who want to put themselves out of work, which I think is really, really cool. Um, I've said it repeatedly, and it's, I guess I could repeat it here, that I'll be happy to hang drywall or paint or you know uh, do landscaping or something like that that you know just kind of uses my hands and um, lets me construct things that I can visibly see if it meant that there was no more hurting in the world. I would love to do that. Um, Maybe not hang drywall. I've done that. That's a hard job. <laughs> and, and my my lumbar scoliosis probably wouldn't appreciate that. So maybe maybe the painting part, maybe the landscaping. But if I'm driving something, I probably can't move rocks real well. But but the point is, <laughs> I could pay my bills a whole bunch of different ways that don't involve helping people find their way who are lost and suffering. And it's it's very challenging. And how evil is it to like? keep people showing up to sessions just because you're insecure about whether or not somebody else is going to walk through the door. We've definitely gone on the rabbit um, trail on this one. That one is, I don't know where we started down that one, but we've definitely arrived there and it's, it is true. I blame Um, technology. We started with that. It was instant (laughs) gratification. I blame Google. Yeah. (laughs) The, yeah, but the, I, I, I'll tie this back into like the whole, thing like when i was going going through school and everything like that and i and i told like i think i mentioned like you know like i already come out as the gun guy and i kind of talked about like you know like there's rumors flying around about mm-hmm. me it's the fact that like why is me being into guns a bad thing because mm. it's it helps it like the thing i never talked about how i truly how i kind of got myself past the ptsd in a sense is was shooting mm. i went out little range i had a i had a best bud and um I talked to him and me and him are, me and him were, were super close. Like it's like, I made the joke on the other, like the, the other podcast before that, like, you know, I think I'm talking over five minutes. My wife says it's an hour. Um, <laughs> but like, he's like, it's just someone that I could talk with and that's what I needed. And I didn't need a therapist at that point right. because the therapist had already laid the road for me. I knew where I needed to go. And then the rest of the people in my community helped me get there. My wife was a major supporter of me, and then my friend, and then I re I, I found passion that helped me get my those energies out. So why is doing something that helps me as a passion a bad thing? Just because it involves a tool? I mean, I could have said I played video games. It's a tool. It helps me do things. But this one got me out doing stuff. Like it's the same thing with like I help with Boy Scouts of um, like the like I help I love I love helping kids get to that achievement. My wife helps as assistant scoutmaster for our girls troop. They're like, we, we, we want to help these kids grow. It's something that helps me with my stress and helps me get outside. So how is it, how is helping with that stuff any different from going shooting? It's, I, I go out, I do things, but it's just because people are judgmental about a certain thing that it became an evil subject. Well, we could be judgmental about any of that stuff. Video games, right? Boy Scouts yeah. recently came under fire for, you know, some of their scout leaders being inappropriate with kids. Um, we, I could attack anything, but that means that it's not about you. It's a me issue. Mm-hmm. And, and the people who are going to be judgmental 
It's a them issue. They have failed to educate themselves. They have failed to be non-judgmental. They have failed to do the exploration. Uh, all the religious zealots who are condemning the LGBTQ population. That's a them issue. That's not a, that's not a gay trans people issue. That's mm-hmm. a you being judgmental issue. And if we're going to answer the question honestly, why is this a problem? First of all, it's not a problem. It's not. Um, but why is it a problem to certain people? I think it's because it's a power and control issue. There's an inherent insecurity and in somebody who's going to be judgmental to the point that they're going to tell somebody else how to live their life. And where does insecurity come from? A whole bunch of places. But what we do know that it has in common with is a need to exercise power and control over others. If you're secure in who you are, you're secure in your belief systems, and you have the confidence that you're going to overcome somebody else's bad decisions, then you go let people do what they do. And you can call that libertarianism or whatever. But the point is, when we stand on autonomy and we allow our patients, clients, friends, relatives, neighbors, politicians, coworkers, business associates, everybody, if we allow them to determine their own lives and we, we all trust each other, then we're all going to be okay. We don't have to believe that we need to control other people due to our own insecurities. So why does somebody want you to stop shooting guns or give your guns up? Their insecurity. They may have good reason for that. They may just not like guns. They can say, "My, I, I knew somebody who died by one." Okay, okay, fine. That has nothing to do with me. I didn't kill him. If that yeah. if that were the case, the criminal justice system would prosecute me, right? And video games are the same way. Uh, you know, don't don't tell me how to play my video games or what video games to play. I'll make that decision. Uh, mm-hmm. You make the decision for you. And until it affects you, I don't. I don't. I don't think it's. I think it's a non-starter. I do think the I, I think that uh, I, I do think there's like hope for us in the future. The um, you guys had Randy Mayan on like he's the liberal gun owners guy. Um, Mian, he did he did correct me. I called him Mayan too, and it's it's Mian, and he said it's what Tarzan does when he's tired. It's kind of like Nevada, not Nevada. Yeah, yeah, you darn right, <laughs> Nevada. <laughs> um, but like when I say that it's like there, there are shit cultural shifts that people are starting to see that like when I, I'm specifically talking about guns here. Um, and I know this is a mental health podcast, but I'm on a soapbox. I'm going to go for it. Um, they can they, shut you off if they want. It's free material, yeah. you know, get what you pay for. So guns are just a tool and guns are a tool that many people use for different uses. Some people like hunting, some people like self-defense, some people just like shooting and it's not a Republican Democrat or liberal thing. Or, I mean, libertarian thing. People of every spectrum like to shoot. And if you don't believe me, go look up liberal gun owners of America or the liberal gun club. Trust me, there are people who are hardcore socialists who love guns. And if you want to talk about it, every socialist and communist revolution was won by a gun. So it's not just a person <laughs> of a certain like political spectrum that likes a firearm. And firearms can be used for everything. And some people like shooting because it's a stress relief. I like shooting because I love I love, I hunt for substance. I do do that, but I also just like the stress relief of it. I also love the joy of seeing a little kid learn the safety rules of shooting because when a kid shoots the first, uh, shoots something and like you can shoot paper targets, but if you put a steel target in front of them, they hit a steel target the first time it goes ping. You talk about like a kid lighting up on Christmas. Oh yeah. my God. Like that joy means like I love teaching kids to shoot because there's a lot of safety aspect of it too, because now they learn self-control and safety there. It, it, 
man, learning to shoot has so many connotations that you can tie into other parts of your life. It's really similar to martial arts, and I've never done martial arts, but as I understand them, because I've had several friends who have been way into them, it's really similar. The discipline, the safety, the uh, personal protection, uh, and then a deep, deep, deep culture, too. Mm -hmm. It's very cool. Yeah, it's just that soapbox over. <laughs> no, it was good. It was good. I'm glad you. I'm glad you said that. I mean, the, part of why we want to do more podcasts is because it gives a long form to explain in context and with nuance, uh, big ideas. Apart from 280 characters or six minute sound bites in between commercials or you know, screamy headlines, um, we, we I think people are craving it. Honestly, I think people are craving long form because of that. But also, it gives a platform to explain what I think has often been caricaturized. Mental health has been caricaturized for a long time. So doing something like this gives a, a, a context and a framework and a nuance. And I'm just some dude with some opinions, and, and I'm open to changing those. Um, but as long as I've, I've got this microphone and a platform, I'm going to use it to get the opinions out there. And we always invite people to write back, you know, Info at naganotes.com, info at zephyrwellness.org. Uh, hit us up with your ideas if you want to hear topics or you want to just say, I think you're way out of line on that. Thank you. Please tell me, but but do it with intentionality. We give a platform to you to talk about your passion because it's important. We went through and still continue, uh, you know, more people the merrier, but we're going through a, a black mental wellness series because I wanted to hear from black people about their struggles with mental illness and how clini black clinicians deal with black people because they're, especially in America, but broadly, racism is a thing. And we white people don't necessarily understand that living in America. And so we give a platform to that. And we want to talk about these these really big concepts that are just too important and too nuanced to put on Twitter uh, or even on Instagram. Who picture says a thousand words. Well, I'm pretty sure we've already spoken 20,000 on this. So like it's, it's bigger than just, pictures. And can I just say that series has been excellent. Mind you, uh, the I've learned, I've learned a lot. Um, it, it's, it's as you guys, um, you'll probably see a picture of me, but I'm, I'm a white, I'm a white, big white bearded guy. I am the epitome of someone. If you think redneck might, I might show up as that picture. <laughs> <laughs> now, like I, I, I wear that with pride, and I, but the thing is, I'm an educated redneck, so I'll go that route. Um, but growing up, I didn't have to deal with those issues, right. and it's, it's kind of cool to hear those stories like that. And I can go on a soapbox also <laughs> when it comes to like guns and black people because I think there's a movement that needs to be talked about, and that's a whole other issue. It and is. I don't want to derail this podcast, but man, I want to go on that soapbox with someone who's up there just as passionate about that as I am. Yeah, if you're hearing this and you're like, what do you mean guns and black people? Uh, listen to Colian Noir, um, but if you really want to dig into the culture, go listen to Argo J. It's three A's in Argo. Uh, he was, he was uh, interviewed on the WTTA podcast called Guns and Mental Health. Um, and he explains what the acronym means. It's not his real, it's not his real name, it's, but it's Argo J or Kevin Dixie. KD, uh, is amazing. And he, he really digs into the history and culture of what black people went through and continue to go through in America. Um, they're amazing follows on Instagram too. If you want to follow their accounts. Um, but yeah, black, black people and guns is a big deal. I I'd love to 
you know, cover lots and lots of different things on this. There's, there's only so much time in the day and this is just kind of a hobby and, um, you know, it's, it keeps me sharp and I get to interview people from all across the world, which is just phenomenal. We're going to have Jazdeep Mago on. Um, she's a, she's a clinical psychologist from India. She's been on the show before, but it's been about two or three years and I'm really excited to have her. I'm actually interviewing her tomorrow morning and I can't wait to catch up with her because just through the course of the pandemic, I want to know what, what's going on in India. And she mm-hmm. has her finger to the pulse of, of that uh, that country and its communities, uh, which are several, and they are disparate. Um, she's a clinical psychologist, founded a, an organization called uh, Invisible Illness, which has to do with suicide prevention. And um, she's she's dynamite. So all that stuff, like, I, I, I don't know, it's just very special, and I want to I want to honor it the way that it, it should be honored. And... Um, it's, um, I don't know. There's just a lot to be explored. Um, I want to be mindful of time too. So we should probably wrap up. Is there anything you wanted to add any uh, cherries on top? No, I mean, I, I appreciate you allowing me to have a space to speak and everything. Like I, the, when I first did the, like the, the interview of WTTA, like I was super nervous. And this one, when you asked me to come back, like I thought it was awesome because I never, I don't foresee myself ever taking the time to, you know, to get published somewhere. That's just, that's not something that interests me. And, but being able to still get my thoughts and my opinions and my ideas out there is, is also, and I mean, like, if you don't agree with my opinions, tell me, like, I've changed my opinions before. It's going to happen again, I'm sure. But being able to talk and grow is, I think, is what we need to do as people and as a profession. And the, like, I, we talked about, you know, like growing as a profession, non-judgmental. The only way to do that is confront it. If you see that in your profession, especially if you're someone who is solidified in your position and not like the person coming in, if you're solidified in position, you know, you can't get a kickback, call that out. Like, because that's the only way it's going to change. It's the people like me coming in. We take a, like out, I take a huge financial risk to call that out. If I call that out in like an internship spot, I'm not graduating. That's just, you keep your mouth shut and get through it. <laughs> and how judgmental is that? What a horrible culture we've created where we hang our hats on lifelong learning and call ourselves non-judgmental, and then we don't let people either graduate or get licensed simply for um, poking the eye of the orthodoxy. And, and I, you're not alone. That's happened in my state too, and um, many stories to tell, but not here. Uh, well, Mr. Eddie Davenport, I uh, appreciate you coming on. Thank you very much. Um, this is, uh, this is the new publication. This is, this is how people publish things and they, and the internet is written in ink, so it will never go away. Uh, ideas are temporary, but screenshots are forever. Something like that. (laughs) Uh, thanks man. And you know, if you don't publish yourself, uh, there's no, there's no movie deal. Uh, I guess I might have to get a ghostwriter. (laughs) (laughs) Negative ghostwriter. The pattern is full. Well, I appreciate you. Thanks uh, on behalf of the Naga Notes family, our Zephyr Wellness family, and everybody listening who supports this and makes it possible by continuing to share our content. We wish you all great mental wellness. Thanks. Take care. Bye.